Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 79. In this, our Halloween week, a very special week for us at Far-Fetched Fables, we have a fun pair of stories for you this week, each with an historical setting and a twist. First, we present some flash fiction in the form of Percy's Crossing by Elizabeth Archer, which first appeared on the website Everyday Fiction. Elizabeth writes flash fiction, short stories and poetry. Her work has appeared in Everyday Fiction, Daily Science Fiction, Everyday Poets and many other places. She lives in the Texas Hill Country and her blog, Let Me Tell You a Story, can be found on WordPress. The tale is read for us by the inimitable Rish Outfield. Rish is a writer, actor and podcaster that can be heard as co-host of the Parsec award-winning Dune Steef Audio Fiction magazine, which presents genre stories with a full cast. He also performs audiobooks for Audible and occasionally becomes a wolf when the wolf's bane blooms and the moon is full and bright. And now, dear listeners, Percy's Crossing by Elizabeth Archer. Sir Percival Pettigrew saw things other men did not see, until it was too late. "'I should have named you Cassandra,' said Lady Pettigrew. "'Pity you were male.' Only his mother understood him. Sadly, she died in a hunting accident, mistaken by Lord Pettigrew for a pheasant. "'Shame about that damned hat of hers,' Lord Pettigrew lamented to Sir Percival and his siblings. He drank himself to oblivion and left everything to Percival's brother Thomas. Being a second son was dreadful. Sir Percival decided to affect a large turban with an enormous pheasant feather in honor of his mum. He wore a jeweled silk caftan and performed at fashionable parties as the all-seeing Pinocchio. You know your name is redundant, don't you? 
said Lady Beatrice Bumbleshoot. I suppose you must. She was a short, dark woman with a hint of mustache and very keen grey eyes. Perhaps I do, said Sir Percival. Tell me, said Beatrice, in my dirigible Titanic, I plan to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Will I be successful? Sir Percival shut his eyes and put the back of his right hand dramatically upon his forehead. No. I see that you are going to hit an iceberg on your maiden voyage. Well, that's Buncombe, said Lady Beatrice, peeved. I can hardly hit an iceberg in a dirigible. Sometimes my visions for the future are strangely imprecise. Perhaps you should come along, said Lady Beatrice. I was planning on taking only my monkey, but you are much more diverting. I can pay you very handsomely. To have someone who can predict the future aboard might prove useful. It happened that Sir Percival owed his tailor a great deal of money for caftans of fine Indian silk. You'll pay? Handsomely. You'll be a sensation in America, said Lady Beatrice. Of course, so will I. They like your sort. Is your dirigible safe? The best things in life never are. But that's why I'm bringing you. You can warn me when I'm going to have difficulties. May I give you my answer on Tuesday? asked Percival. Tuesday seemed more auspicious. He had never fancied small dark women, or women in general. Heights frightened him, and so did monkeys. Unfortunately, his tailor and bootmaker threatened to make life in town hell. On Tuesday, he visited Lady Bumbleshoot's London lodgings, and agreed to terms. I think it best you wear trousers on the dirigible, said Beatrice. I plan on wearing trousers myself. An airship is no place for skirts. Don't you ever dress as a man? I am dressed as a man. It is a caftan, of the sort men wear in the East. Beatrice narrowed her grey eyes at him. Call it what you will, she replied. You do have trousers? Of course, he said stiffly. He found them uncomfortably chafing downstairs after the caftans, but he had no desire to share that information with Lady Beatrice. On a fine summer day they embarked from the coast. The monkey was airsick. So was Lady Beatrice. I had not counted on being stricken, she moaned. <laughs> what do you predict? Her face was green, and she kept leaning over the basket and being ill. I predict I will have to learn to fly a dirigible, said Sir Percival or we will die. The time I flew from London to Brighton, I was fine. It is a shorter distance. Beatrice collapsed in a corner with the monkey in her lap. Sir Percival tried to predict the voyage, but all he saw in his future was ocean. He was greatly relieved when he had a vision of a large green woman with a torch. We are going to make it across, he told Beatrice. His vision proved imprecise. They descended abruptly and landed on a small island in the outer Hebrides, where an elderly Scottish person greeted them with a lantern. She was wearing green. At least we survived, Beatrice observed. The monkey caused an immediate sensation on the island. 
where people had never seen a real capuchin. Sir Percival found his own lack of welcome disheartening. "'They have seen men in dresses before.' "'This is Scotland,' said Beatrice. "'You'd better put your trousers on in all this mud.' In London they became instant celebrities, but not in the way they imagined. Sir Percival Pettigrew became known as the first man to fly a dirigible to the Hebrides. It would be a long time, people said, before anyone could cross the Atlantic. No sane Englishman, the Times printed, would ever attempt such a feat. Poor Beatrice became the woman who got sick in the corner of the basket whilst holding a monkey. Fortunately, she had piles of money from her father's woolen mills for consolation. "'What do you see in my future?' she asked Sir Percival. "'I predict you will marry a man in a caftan and settle in the country,' he told her. Flying a dirigible had made a man out of Percival, his brother Tom told the other pettigrews. "'Perhaps the shape of the craft reminded him of something,' sniggered his cousin Adolphus. The truth involved a rather cold night in Scotland, a bottle of whiskey, and his pressing need for release from financial problems. They were married quietly. She wore sensible breeches, and he wore a new white silk caftan, with a matching turban. The monkey wore a small kilt they had bought him in the Hebrides. Every so often, the Percival Pettigrews would go for a brief ride in one of their silk hot-air balloons. Percival wore turbans to match the silks. "'Pity we can't make these from father's wood,' sighed Beatrice, who spent a great deal of her fortune on silk, all things considered. "'Never mind,' said Percival, shutting his eyes. "'In the future, flying machines will be made of metal, and no cloth at all. "'Don't be ridiculous. You might as well tell me monkeys will go up in space.' <laughs> Comedian Stephen Wright once described himself as a peripheral visionary, someone who could see into the future, but only way off to the side. The same could be said about Percival, though it seems to work for him, more or less. And so on to our feature story for the week, the epistolary tale Olympia's Ghost by Sophia Samatar. Sophia is the author of the novel A Stranger in Olondria, and winner of the John W. Campbell Award, the Crawford Award, the British Fantasy Award, and the World Fantasy Award. Her second book, The Winged Histories, is forthcoming in 2016 from Small Beer Press. She co-edits the journal Interfictions and lives in California. The story is narrated for you by Nicole Doolin. Nicole is a writer and a voice actor. Her fiction, poetry, and plays have been published and presented, and her voice has appeared in various media. Nicole has performed numerous narrations for a number of podcasts, such as The No Sleep Podcast, Tales to Terrify, and your very own Far-Fetched Fables. She also narrates classic literature by the likes of Austen, Poe, James, and more in her own podcast, Audio Literature Odyssey. To learn more, you can visit her website at nicoledoolin.com. And now, Olympia's Ghost by Sophia Samatar. My dear S, Emil says you will not come to Freiburg this year, but Mother says you will. Who is right? We all know you hate Vienna with a passion. 
That is, Mother and Emile know it, and I know it through them, for Mother reads your letters aloud, and sometimes Emile, too, shares a few lines. Pray do not be angry. It is such a little thing to hear of your successes, and it makes me very happy. And then your sallies on your masters are so droll, and your remarks on Vienna, St. Stephen's steeple like a great rolled-up umbrella. Mother can hardly read for laughing. I am sure you will not begrudge me this diversion, my dear S. On the days when there is no letter from you, life continues just as usual. The weather has been fine. There is fruit on the peach trees. In the long twilight, while Emile reads, I go up and down, up and down the stairs. A few days ago I did have a new amusement. A marionette theater sprang up overnight in the square, like a white mushroom. I watched the marionettes for several hours, even though a light rain was falling, and the children screamed mercilessly. I suppose you would not have liked the noise. Or the look of the dirty little boy who came around afterward had extended to gather our coins. As I left, I saw him sharing a cigar behind the theater with the puppet master, a rough, disreputable-looking fellow, undoubtedly his father. Oh, but the marionettes were so beautiful. The little Pierrot had a spangled coat, and two great tears shone under his eyes. He wore his heart on the outside like any fool. As for Columbine, she carried a hand mirror that reflected her lavender hair. I looked for them today, but they are gone. I try not to be restless. Emile dislikes what he calls my thumping. Do not able try to read. A volume by E.T.A. Hoffman has been discovered in the library, and we think it must be yours, for it is certainly not ours. As I read, I will imagine that you are here again, seated in your chair by the window, teasing Mother as she chuckles over her knitting, and that you turn, with your hair lit up all reddish by the sunset through the window, and speak to me kindly. Your Gisela. My dear S., I have had the most marvelous dream, and I believe I have you to thank for it, for it came directly out of the pages of Hoffman. I dreamt that I was entering the door of a very large eating house, rather like a restaurant in the Prater. The door was of glass with gilt lettering. I could not make out what it said, but I remember a large O with twisting vines. Inside everything shone, the glasses and tableware, the chandeliers, and the jewels and curled hair of the fine people at the tables. The walls were all covered with mirrors. I saw myself moving among the tables. I wore a mauve dress and, strangely enough, a powdered wig. I was not at all nervous, though the restaurant was very imposing. I went on walking, for I felt vaguely that I was supposed to be meeting someone. Then a young man caught my eye. He wore an old-fashioned frock coat and was talking earnestly to his companion a lady in a powdered wig. It was Hoffman's Nathaniel. I knew him at once. His thin face, very handsome if somewhat sickly, his black eyes, the trembling of his hands. He was precisely like the hero of that bewitching story, The Sandman, which I had finished just before going to bed. And who do you suppose the lady was? Olympia, of course. As I passed behind her chair, she made a wheezing mechanical sound and then cried out, Ah! Ah! It was she! 
Spallanzani's exquisite doll, so lovely and lifelike that Nathaniel fell wildly in love with her. I knew I had stumbled into the part of this story that tells of their courtship. It is difficult to describe the elation I felt upon this discovery. To be in a story. Oh, the chandeliers seemed to blaze more brightly, and I hurried around the table to look at Olympia's face. What do you think? She looked exactly like me. Well, all but her eyes. These were quite fixed and strange, and glittered only when she nodded her head. This she did regularly, and then her eyes reflected the lights of the restaurant, creating an effect that was almost human. Poor Nathaniel was smitten with her. I circled the table to look at him again, but just as he glanced at me, I woke up. I suppose it should have been frightening to see oneself as a doll, but it wasn't. Not in the least. I woke up feeling rested and full of life. Indeed, I felt better than I have done for weeks. Both Mother and Emile commented on my color and said I looked very well. The summer has reached you at last, said Mother. You know, she often calls me her Arctic chick, a silly name, for I am not at all cold-natured. If I have been subdued lately, it is only because it makes me melancholy to think you will not come to see us. Your Gisela S. So you think I ought not to read Hoffman? I am too sensitive for his art. Then why could you not write to me yourself? Think how humiliating it was for me to be taken aside by Emile like a child. He could hardly look at me. He knew himself it was wrong. Don't be angry, he pleaded, as if I could help it. I felt myself growing hard and stony, absolutely petrifying with rage. When he left and I moved at last, raising my hand to smooth my hair, my own shadow startled me, shifting on the wall. I have given the book to Emile. My dreams are my own. I have been there again, you know. To the restaurant. I have walked between the smooth white tablecloths. No one seems to notice me there, except him. He sees me. Nathaniel, he sees me. The first time he looked at me, he started like a hare. I was standing behind Olympia, just at her shoulder, and Nathaniel glanced at me and then down at his beloved, and then up at me again, a potent horror dawning in his eyes. I realized then how disconcerting it must have been for him. Here was a second idol standing behind the first, and this one ever so much more alive than the seated one, more human, with vivid eyes aglow beneath the lights. He looked wildly at the mirrors to find that I was also there. It was clear that no one else in the restaurant could see me. A waiter walked past me, brushing my arm. Nathaniel paled. His hair went lank with sweat. I feared to see him faint. I smiled at him with the idea of calming his nerves. He flung his arm up before his face. That made me hesitate. I watched him grope for his glass. He gulped the wine greedily. He was looking at Olympia now, with a different kind of terror in his eyes. Of course, he believed her to be human. He was desperately in love and would not wish to act like a madman in front of her. He straightened himself and smoothed his coat and said something to her in a strange, shrill voice. A silly drawing-room question about music. Music, 
had she been studying it long. It was comical. When he glanced at me again, I could not help baring my teeth. Just a little bit. To see what would happen. He shuddered and blanched more violently than before. It was as if he were a fish, and the hook had pierced his lip. I winked at him. Very vulgar, but it was a dream. He danced at the end of the line, gasping for air. Nathaniel, I said. Great drops stood on his brow. Nathaniel, I repeated. He babbled of Mozart, grapes and handkerchiefs, while his clockwork darling answered, Ah, ah. Such a ridiculous scene. I woke up laughing. But I am not laughing now. Dear S, why could you not write to me directly? Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I would so love a letter from you, even a scolding one. If only you would reply, I would not ask to read E.T.A. Hoffman or anyone else. And don't say propriety. You know I hate the sound of the word. We all hated it together when we were children, don't you remember? The Hochwald and how you flung your hat into the weeds. You said hats were never worn in paradise. Can we not go there? Your Gisela. Dear S, dear Master, do you remember how we used to call you that? I suppose you think me too young to remember myself, but I recall every detail of your visits here, even the first year, when you wore a penknife on a chain and the blackberries were so plentiful. I used to trail behind when you and Emil walked to the Hochwald. You talked to Cervantes in the noble Castilian tongue. You called each other Dawn, and the two of you tied me to a tree by my apron strings and left me alone for half an hour. The sky grew dark and the whole wood sighed. I twisted against my apron, trying to move my left arm, which was closest to the knot. The cloth pressed into my abdomen. The rugged bark scraped my forearm, and I closed my eyes as a cold wind shook the bracken. 
The first drop of rain struck my brow with such violence I thought it was an acorn. Then I heard voices calling me through the trees. Gizala? Gizala! You had lost me. I writhed harder against my taut apron, saying nothing, and then you crashed through a thicket and almost toppled into me. Why didn't you answer? And what have you done? You cried, having untied me to discover my arm rubbed bloody by the tree. Why, Gizala? Your eyes were dark with fear, your lips so close I could see the dim sheen on them, their texture of cranberry skins. The family opinion that I am strange and cold dates from that visit. You knew better. Didn't you ask permission to bring my milk upstairs? I remember your face in the light of my little candle, the warmth of my heated blankets, the storm outside blowing as if it would knock the house down. You were too large for my room. You made it shrink. You must tell me everything, you said. Everything, even if it makes you afraid, especially if it makes you afraid. Such urgency in your voice. I was happy for the slight sting in my arm. Without it, I might have thought I was dreaming. Did you not say, dear master, that the life of dreams is real? I follow Nathaniel through Hoffman's streets. When he goes to the opera, I am there, in a great fur the color of horn. When he buys tobacco, I am there, turning over some postcards. My favorite amusement is to run beside him when, in the evenings, he goes out to settle his nerves with a bit of air. He runs faster, and I run faster. My feet are so light, so light. I can hear him whimpering, and even praying in a low voice. His fear is so strong. I breathe it in like the odor of aqua vitae. He is rather beautiful, his brown hair cut long, his face pale as a lamp with suffering. These days he has grown somewhat shabby. His coat is stained and a faint beard blurs his cheeks. I wish he looked more like you. G. My dear master, my dreams are so lovely, they really ought to be turned into something, perhaps an opera. Yes, why not? I should call it Olympia's Ghost. Perhaps you and I could write it together. I would provide the dreams, and you the poetry. Let me know if you would like me to send you some notes. Like this. Evening. A dark garret. Nathaniel, a young man of gloomy aspect. Paces between the window and the fire. That was how I found him last night. When I entered, he crossed himself and sank to his knees, his upraised face capturing all the poor light in the room. Who are you? Who are you? He whispered. I said, You know. No, he said. You are not she. But I am, Nathaniel, I told him gently. I am her soul. He shook his head, recoiling towards the wall. Never! I know my Olympia's pure soul. It looks at me out of her tranquil eyes. Well, I laughed at that. He covered his face. He cannot bear my laughter. Olympia never laughs. Come, show some spirit, I said, prodding him with my foot. He began to strike his head against the wall, and when he seized the poker... Determined to do himself a mischief, I decided to leave the room. Outside, the streets were lightly dusted with snow. Winter is coming early to the dream city. 
just as it is coming here. Walking beside the dream canal, I hummed a snatch of tune, which, now that I come to think of it, might become an aria for Olympia's ghost. I think I should call it The Hidden Life of Dolls. It will be sung by the ghost herself, of course. The tune is similar to Ach du lieber Augustin. I am only really happy with two lines. See, the midnight clock is shining brightly. It is the doll's moon. Is it not rather fine? Perhaps it is not exactly poetry, but you will take care of that. I remember a golden day. So long it seemed nearly endless. And the strawberries in the meadow. And you told us a fortune teller had predicted you would become a cabinet minister. Emil said it was possible. He might become one, too. Why not? You might both have distinguished careers, for being Jewish was hardly a handicap nowadays. You stared at him in amazement. A cabinet minister? Is that what you envision for me? Boiled beef at dinner and speech writing afterward? Thank you very much. I understood you perfectly. I said, Sigmund will be a poet. You looked at me, grateful and sunburned, your shirt open at the neck. There, you said triumphant, Gisela knows me best after all. And we both laughed at a meal, you and I together. Then, of course, he blushed and claimed he was only joking and that he would be a painter. But he will do no such thing. He will inherit the dye works. What of you, dear master? This morning my eyes were crusted shut, as if I had slept for many days. The Sandman has been here. G. My dear master, Last night I pursued him into a church. I wore a barometer at my waist like a reticule. Clumps of candles shone here and there in the huge dark sanctuary, tiny and far apart like autumn crocuses in a plain of mud. These lines, I notice, make me sound rather restless and unhappy. Be sure that I am nothing of the sort. My health is splendid. Mother has had to let out all of my dresses, and my hair has grown so thick I can scarcely grasp it in both hands. It is true that I go up and down the stairs more frequently than ever, but only because it is too wet to go out. I must tire myself somehow. And nobody likes my moving about so much, either in the house or in the dye shop. And so, to the stairs. The old carpeting is almost all worn away, and the polished wood underneath gleams beautifully, rich as fat. I hurry down, for I get the most relief from climbing up again, toward the little hall window that frames a patch of sky. I begin to be frightened for him. When I entered the church, his shock and horror were so great that he collapsed in the aisle, foaming at the lips. The priest and the other good people there took him away to a back room, where I hovered anxiously until he regained consciousness. He looked very thin, very frail, like a glass angel. I slipped away before he noticed me. I could hear him weeping as I went out of the church. What if he should die? I am haunted by the awful conclusion to Hoffman's tale. Dear Master, I write because you said, Tell me everything. G. And two years ago, the last time you came, you rushed past the house just as you were, all grimy from the journey, and you ran off into the meadow, and I ran after you, 
Like a lunatic, Mother said later, and we kicked through the grass, releasing a green bruised odor, and you threw yourself into the arms of the cypress tree, the most somber tree in the meadow, certainly more funereal than the ones in Italian pictures, and perhaps there is something about our northern clime that makes them grow that way, almost black, absorbing all the light, not reflecting it at all, or perhaps it is only the paler light here, the paler sky against which they stand like sentries, and you seized a branch in your teeth and chewed it savagely, and I too pressed my face to the needles and bit, and you muttered, Freiburg, Freiburg, and I imagined that you were repeating my name. My dear Sigmund, so you persist in your silence. This is no more than I expected. Emil assures me that you will certainly not come now. Your zoology examination, it appears, is set for the end of the month. Well, I wish you success, though it is clear you need no encouragement from me. You are resolved, he says, to become a man of science. Perhaps you are thinking of my Nathaniel and wondering if he lives. Please do not distress yourself. Nathaniel is quite well. Only last week I observed him consuming cakes on a balcony with his Olympia. She, of course, ate nothing. It seems she is conscious of her figure. I peered at them from under my parasol and walked on. I try not to let Nathaniel see me these days. I imagine he and his darling will marry and produce a line of human children with wooden hearts. Sigmund, I know the secret. Emil took me out this morning at Mother's urging. The air was raw. The streets a rough mixture of frost and mud. To my amazement, the marionettes were again dancing in the square before a paltry audience of mostly poor children. Pierrot's little face was so hard and sad it brought the tears to my eyes. Columbine's hand mirror I realized as a lorgnette. She peered at me with an eye as gray as a clam. Her gaze quite went through me. But the magnification also revealed a great crack in her plaster forehead. Thanks to the improved health I have enjoyed recently, I am very nimble and strong. I tore away from Emil and dashed behind the theater. The dirty little boy was sitting there, quite comfortable on an overturned pail, blowing vigorously on his gloveless hands. I could only see his father, the puppet master, from the waist down, a pair of baggy trousers tucked into hobnailed boots. The boy stood, but I pushed past him and tugged the puppet master's shirt. He lifted the spangled curtain and glared at me. What is it, miss? On the other side of the theater, the children had begun to roar their disapproval at the sudden collapse of the show. Emil rushed up behind me. The puppet master, breathing white fog from his black beard, told us to be off using a vulgar expression. I know the secret, I told him. Emil had seized me now and was pulling me away. He gave me a terrible lecture all the way home. I did not mind. Every time I raised my hand, as if sprinkling sugar, a host of swallows rose into the sky to climb, to climb. This morning my eyes were crusted shut again. When I rubbed them, my fingers came away covered with brown flakes. Has the cold weather caused it somehow, or is it blood? Now that I am avoiding Nathaniel, I have had the chance to explore more of the dream city. 
I often find myself in black, narrow, odorous, humid streets, the streets where I used to chase him in merrier days. There is a certain alley that reminds me of the one behind the smithy in Freiburg, the one with a plaque commemorating the burning of witches. I always feel nervous in that dark dream street, yet at the same time I am drawn to the place. Last night, as I wandered there, a curious scraping echoed from the walls, a slow, uneven, tortured sound, the groan of an object moving with great difficulty over the slimy stones. I paused. There was very little light. The buildings on either side shut out the moon, but the stones of the alley themselves possess a strange, greenish radiance. In that eldritch light, a figure came toward me, dragging itself painfully, a towering thing with an outline like a crag. Closer. Closer. I watched, frozen to the spot. For the first time in that place I was terrified. The creature lurched toward me on heavy, jointless legs. I saw it was made of wood, and not just wood, but a wild patchwork of wood, painted pieces fixed haphazardly together. It was as if a crazed puppeteer had taken all the pieces left over from building his marionettes and constructed one fabulous, horrible puppet, a creature taller than a man, its shoulders built up like buttresses, its sad face hanging down upon its chest. For it had a sad face, Sigmund, such a sad face, a face of flesh, very pale, the face of an invalid, bloody tear tracks descended from its eyes. I knew at once that it was the Sandman. It raised a clumsy arm and pointed toward the sky. To climb. To climb. The last time I saw you. Vienna. New Year's Eve. Your mother was distressed as your father had not yet arrived. She kept running out to the landing to see if he had come. The parlor was hot from our dancing. I wore a white holiday dress and a black velvet ribbon. I had decided that there would be no more shyness on my part. No pretense. The flavor of bitter cypress was in my mouth. I had tucked a sprig of it inside the bosom of my dress to bring you there in the city the delirious freshness of Freiburg. When we danced, I pressed close to you so that you would smell it. You pushed me back with a cold look. Later that night I heard you talking in the kitchen. As for Gisela Flus, you said, once she was a decorous doll, and now she has become an indecorous flirt. A doll? A flirt? But I shall become an artist, and you, you will be a man of science. The Sandman jerked his arm, signaling to me. I realized that he was pointing to the single lighted window in the dismal tenement above the street. There, at a table, a man sat writing. His brown hair was tied in a pigtail. His coat was not clean. I thought, astonished, that this must be my Nathaniel. Then he raised his head and looked out the window. Eyes narrowed, pencil against his teeth, and I saw that he was an entirely different person. With his mobile face and pensive, furrowed brow, he looked more like the Sandman than Nathaniel. He was, of course, the double of them both. 
Father, devil, puppeteer. He was Hoffman. I glanced at the Sandman, who gestured eagerly at the drainpipe on the wall. I am no fortune teller, Sigmund, but I will make you a prediction. I predict that one day you will regret your choice. I predict that you will try to go back, to find your way to the dream city and the winding streets that might have made you a poet. You will search for Hoffman, and you will not find him. It will not be your destiny to embrace him and kiss him on the mouth. Nor will it be your destiny to wind your apron string about his neck and set free his collection of wooden birds. The Sandman gestured to me, weeping blood. I went to the wall and examined the drainpipe. Now I could no longer see Hoffman in his room. The edge of the lighted window shone like frost. I handed the Sandman my wig, grasped the pipe in both hands, and began to climb. I just love the way Sophia's story does a slow burn before making a sharp left turn into the weird. It's a great ghost story for the week of Halloween, don't you think? Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but don't change it or sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors, and violators will be haunted. If you like what you hear at Farfetched Fables, please consider making a donation to the District of Wonders. The buttons are on the website. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F. We hope you enjoy your Halloween week. Enjoy the pumpkin carving. Try not to use anything sharp after you've had a couple of beverages. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.